Welcome to this episode of Data Unchained. I'm Molly Presley, your host, and I'm really excited to have a longtime colleague, um, really interesting industry leader joining me on today's podcast. Ari Berman is the CEO of a company called Bioteam and a longtime researcher, technologist in the life sciences space. Ari, welcome to the show. Thank you, Molly. So good to be here with you. Great to have you here. Would you start by telling us about you personally a bit? Um, you have a really interesting, diverse background, and then a little bit about Bioteam as well. Sure, happy to. Uh, yeah, I definitely have a very strange and diverse background. Uh, I, it's uh, rooted both in science and technology. So uh, I've, I have a PhD in molecular biology and trained as a neuroscientist and did 15 years of laboratory research uh, on the neuroscience of addiction, as well as in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. Uh, and then I spent another uh, five years doing uh, purely computational research, uh, trying to take uh, gene targets that we are discovered in model organisms and figure out the, the same targets in humans. Um, and then at the same time, I've been designing, building, and operating supercomputers and high-performance computing environments for about 30 years. And uh everything in between and uh, basically designing and putting together IT infrastructures that support science. Um, and so those two things came together very well in this uh, this company bio team that I joined in 2012 as a consultant. And uh, uh, that's exactly what we do. We sort of bridge the gap between science and IT and, uh, you know, try to make science go faster uh, and so better supported by IT. So tell us a little bit more for those who may be joining the show that aren't experts in IT. How does supercomputing and health of human, the human population come together? There's a lot of data that's generated out there, basically, which is, I guess, why this is so apt for data and chained here. Um, we, what's happened in the last, I guess, 15 or so years in life sciences and biomedical research is that the laboratory technology used to do research and analyze what might be going on in disease conditions or disease-like conditions, or just really to even understand basic biology, has really taken off. It's, uh, you know, we talk about Moore's Law and, you know, uh, technology increasing at a, uh, at a, uh, an exponential scale. The technology innovation in a laboratory has been basically cubic, um, such that it's it's almost straight up. So that the laboratory technology for a while was innovating on the order of months, where IT was on the order of years. And so, the fascinating thing about that is that uh, because that laboratory technology was changing so much, um, how did I how could IT keep up with that with refresh cycles that were in three to five years? Um, and also at the very beginning, IT didn't even know they had to support science. So they were really supporting documents and printing and phone systems and, uh, you know, desktop systems. And all of a sudden the scientists say, Hey, I need a server. I need to use things. And so the supercomputing industry sort of swooped in that's been around for a very long time with lots of other sciences like, you know, astronomy, high energy physics, uh, simulation spaces, those sorts of things. Uh, but the life sciences industry uh, sort of got into it, at least on a on a very sophisticated level, um, uh, to to start 
using uh, large supercomputers or, or clusters as processing farms, basically. So, um, so that so that they could have uh, what they needed. So, complicated space, <laughs> but. Uh, Thus your background, <laughs> marrying the two technologies. Basically. So BioTeam's mission is increase the speed of scientific discovery by applying data strategies. There's a bit more to it than that, but I want to delve into this for this podcast and talk a little bit more about that. So when you think about how data is informing scientific discovery, and you know we're all in the middle of a world where health and human population health is forefront with the COVID pandemic and things that have been raging around the world in different countries, even before COVID. How does data inform driving forward cures, driving forward things like mask mandates? You know, how does this tie to the humans that listen to this show? Surprisingly tightly, um, and in a way that most people probably wouldn't be aware of. Uh, you know, the media and Twitter and those folks tend to distill year-long, many years-long research projects from lots and lots of data down into, you know, 160-character, you know, soundbite and call that research. Um, but the, the reality is, and COVID is a great example, the, the way data are generated and the way data are treated by say, governments are very different across the world. And you know, things like data privacy laws and, uh, you know, in the United States, HIPAA is sort of the most uh, the most known of that. And GDPR across Europe is, is another one that really takes data that's generated by, you know, from a human being that has that human being's information attached to it and limits its use to the country of origin and sometimes even even more tightly than that. Um, what happened when COVID happened was suddenly the world had to figure out how to survive. So, uh, you know, if you know uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, the, the, the top uh, level of, of uh, the human condition is self-actualization in which rules like, uh, you know, uh, limiting data to a, a country can happen. We dropped all the way down to survival and all the countries dropped, dropped that for COVID immediately. And what was really interesting is that the data for COVID started really to flow. It was, you know, things like sequencing data for what was this virus to even begin with? We had never seen it before. You know, how did, how did we figure out, you know, quickly how to generate vaccines? It's because the world collaborated on figuring out what it looked like and where we could make vaccines against and what did it do? How did it bind to our cells? Those sorts of things. And so what's really interesting is the National Institutes of Health has collected something like 55 petabytes of COVID data. And that's a lot of data. And, uh, you know, in collaboration with cloud uh, providers and um, and also using uh, uh, local and and uh, collaborative supercomputing groups did things in a couple of weeks, like be able to generate the entire molecular structure of uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus um, and figure out that the spike protein is the important part of that. Um, and that in the wild, the spike protein is covered in all these, you know, glycan uh, 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 protein sugars that protect it from the immune system. And that uh, that made it so that your immune system couldn't really get a fix on that um, uh, and and generate antibodies against it. So the, the vaccines were developed as just the spike protein without that so that your immune system could effectively attack it. And so, um, you know, there, there's, there was a whole lot of really interesting data that affected that. And because the world needed to collaborate quickly on that in order to 
get us moving forward in this pandemic, which is still ongoing. The only reason we were able to do that was because of infrastructures to be able to support high quality, high speed and highly collaborative analyses uh, and then the sharing of those results uh, globally. So, um, you know, things like mask mandates or masks are the same thing. You know, lots of interesting simulations, uh, you know, uh, computational fluid dynamics is the area that studies sort of how fluids or gases, you know, sort of flow through air and through substances. And so, you know, simulating masks and masks in conditions and understanding, you know, if someone coughs, what does that look like in a room in various conditions? And they did all these different things. And just in the simulation space, it was clear that masks were helpful. Uh, to 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 reduce the spread, but uh, there's also been a lot of empirical work there. So, hopefully, that answers the question a little bit. You're touching on a few key trends that you and I have discussed, and the idea of the sh- the cultural shift of my data to our data. That there's been legislation, there's been organizations for IP reasons, all kinds of reasons that my data has been held tightly, and our data and sharing across the globe has really been a, a big advancement for scientists, and it seems like we need to figure out the standards and the legislation to make that something we can do. Um, I think that's a really fascinating concept. And then as you start to talk a little bit more about the science of what you're doing, um, one of the other things we've talked about is that data is becoming, coming, becoming more diverse. It's coming from, I think you mentioned, you know, supercomputing simulations, genomic sequencers, viral analysis, several things just in that um, conversation just now. Maybe talk a little bit about it for data to become really usable globally to the people who need it to make good decisions, to do research. Are there standards that are needed? Kind of what needs to happen with data to take this to the next level? I'm so glad you asked that question. This is my soapbox this year. Um, so the negative side of the whole COVID uh analytics is that the data came in in a million different formats and you know you can't just get a sequencing file and know what it is right it has to have a lot of metadata attached to it that describes where it came from who did the work you know what kind of sequencer was it done on you know uh what was the sample type how was it prepped all these things and uh and then once you analyze it and start getting it into um you know the space of of knowledge generation you have to tag it with you know what family did it belong to and uh you know those sorts of things and um what what happened was the data came in in almost countless different formats and so to even start analyzing it Data scientists, data curators, bioinformaticians had to sit there and figure out how to bring those data into the same context. There's this concept called ETL, which is extract, transform, and load. And extracting the data, you know, pulling it onto your system so that you can analyze it, and then transforming the data so that you can actually load it into analytics to actually gain knowledge from it. And in life sciences and biomedical space, there are th- there are standard formats. There's just 40 of them, and everyone thinks theirs is the best. Um, and that's a big problem because in order to look at data in larger contexts than just your research project or your collaborative project, you really need to spend a lot of time harmonizing those data. And this is a big problem across everything. And I, you know, it could be just sequencing data even comes across. There's lots of different sequencer manufacturers um, and they all have their different file formats and they all have their different, you know, sample prep formats. But now we're looking at extraordinarily diverse sets of data like images. 
You know, you, you step into an MRI machine, you get all the MRI data, which isn't actually an image. It's converted into an image for you to look at. But there's all sorts of really interesting stuff that comes from that. Um, you know, microscope data that is looking at things like pathology. Um, yeah, you know, do you have cancer? Is your liver cirrhosed? Uh, you know, do you have all these other uh, potential conditions? Um, and uh, then and and with with COVID, um, using newer technologies like uh, cryo-electron microscopy, which is a, a newer method of electron microscopy that allows you to look at the physical structure of something extremely microscopic, like down to the atoms, in a way that it's fixed in a lifelike condition. That was, that's been hard to do because you're basically aiming an electron laser at a thing and it evaporates before you really get to look at it. So, um, you know, doing those types of analyses, it generates all these different interesting types of data that have no common context. And if you really want to pull it together to make good uh, discoveries and make large data sets out of this to increase the power of, of the type of searches you're doing, um, uh, you that there's, there's a lot to it. It's a hard space. So that, I think that's a really kind of interesting concept that MRIs aren't actually images. They're a bunch of complex things and bits and bytes behind it that become an image. How does this work? So you think about analytics and deriving information that's conclusive results out of this data. Is it AI? Is it um, computers? Is it really smart scientists with PhDs who's looking at all this and drawing conclusions? How does that work? That's a very complex question with a complex answer. Um, and I'm not sure I know all of it. I can say that it's actually a mixture of all of those things. So, you know, just sticking with the MRI for a second, uh, that was, you know, brilliant physics engineering that did that. That's using electromagnetic waves in a controlled environment to, you know, basically see disruptions in an electromagnetic field across a tissue at various states and being able to resolve that into what maybe caused that in different densities and then turning that into an image or a set of absorbances or other things uh, like, you know, you can watch neurons activate, for instance, uh, when someone's doing something, you know, functional MRI. Um, and so um, it was it was a mixture of what are we trying to do and how do we get there? And, um, you know, it, I think these layers of innovation come from past attempts to to view things and how hard it was to do them. Um, and then realizing that, you know, these different types of data, if you if you coalesce them in a way that helps answer specific questions that you're asking, so hypotheses in science, right? You know, <laughs> what is cancer, right? Cancer is actually very complex, you know, 180 different subtypes of cancer, at least, with all sorts of different etiologies. Um, you know, some are virus forms, some, some we don't even know why they start. Um, so there isn't a cure for cancer, right? Uh, and there never will be. So how do you treat cancer? That's sort of the question. And then how do you get down to what these things are? on a molecular level. Um, and then how do you, you know, merge that with the system they're a part of, which is your body, you know, the, 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 the tumor or the cells don't exist in a vacuum. So if you're studying the cells themselves, you have to understand how they interact with the system. And so you need data for the system and you need to understand the human history of the person that, that was attached to them because not everyone's the same. And so that, you know, this is, this is getting towards 
I guess, the panacea of what data can do for us if collected and analyzed correctly, which is sort of this area of precision medicine, where using these various analytics methods in a healthcare environment, we can pinpoint how to treat your condition the way you have it. So it's personalized medicine, but a lot more pinpointed, which ultimately would say in an ideal world, there'd be no side effects from your treatment. It would only treat what we're aiming at, and it would actually be you know, uh, curative or, uh, or take care of the symptoms or stop the disease from progressing or whatever those things are. We're, we're still a, a long way away from that, but we're getting there. That's, it's fascinating. I think that as we think about the progression and the types of folks who listen to this show, I mean, it's going to be people anywhere from the ones who make the supercomputers to the cloud companies, the ones who make servers who are in massive supply chain problems. I, you know, I think that we think about kind of how do we help further these initiatives? You know, th- those of us who are not immersed in the life sciences space and the, the biotech space, um, I know there's a piece about infrastructure, about making data available globally to the people who can make the decisions. Kind of what is your guidance to the industry that maybe is on the periphery of your space? So the industry is blocked by a number of things, uh, and you named a lot of them. I think everyone has the intention to get there, but there are short-term problems. Like, how do I advance my career? How do I get funded for my research? How does my supercomputing center get its next set of funding so I can build the next supercomputer? Um, How do the uh, vendors that provide that, uh, those, those computers and storage equipment and networking equipment equipment to build the supercomputers, how do they make money and how do they win that? Um, And, and, you know, where does that go? So um, a lot so let me back into the supercomputing space for a second, where um, in computing, the, uh, the the metrics that they are usually sold by is, you know, what we call hero numbers, right, which is, um, you know, benchmarks against certain types of data flows. And, you know, this does this many, you know, uh, fractional calculations per second, um, which me- is meaningless to to an end user, to a scientist. Um, you know, it's 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 like saying, you know. Uh, uh, my car gets, uh, you know, 17 miles per gallon and having that translate to how fast it goes. Right. Um, you know, it just, it's just not, not an equivalence that people can make. So, um, you know, I think where we are trying to push things is what problem are you trying to solve and what tools support that solution? Um, and it could be, you know, cloud providers, it could be, um, uh, you know, supercomputers, it could be you're building your own thing, you know, it could be software, it could be any number of things. But if you think about the problem you're trying to solve and how the ecosystem of scientific computing can help support that, the question gets answered in a different way. And you really approach it more based on the outcomes you're trying to solve than let's build a shiny thing and see how that can help us. That makes sense. So making all of this data available, driving some standards, continuing to give access as this data is created across different types of instruments. All these things are things I think probably as we kind of close that we can tie this up with. Um, Anything else that you want to share with our audience about how BioTeam kind of steps into this, solving these solutions? I think people might be interested to hear that as well. I think one of the things that we focus a lot on that is probably unusual is that, you know, we talk about the technology, we talk about the science. The reality is that all of it is done by people. So, Culture is a huge part of the problem and a huge part of what needs to be changed here. So um, 
bioteam, we sort of take a very holistic view of these things. We, we take a view of the technology. We take a view of the science. We take a view of the, the, the people that need to support it. And we try to work very collaboratively with our clients so that they can accomplish their mission. And so that all of those, those, those three parts of the triad can converge so that, um, we can help drive the industry forward in a way that helps make science easier to do really. Um, and you know, the cultural part of that is huge. Uh, you know, there's a lot of resistance say to some of the things that we've talked about, like, you know, common data standards. It's a ton of resistance in the field to do that because they're not necessarily incentivized to do that work. And it's hard and, you know, changing how they're doing things will slow down their production. Um, so it's got to be easy. It's got to be incentivized. And, you know, you really have to pay attention to the people and create a new culture around it. So that's really where Bioteam spends its time and our expertise is in all of those spaces so that we can drive it forward. And, you know, our bigger goal is simply to really drive science forward in a way that is supported by technology so that uh, humanity can continue to mature in a way that allows us to avoid things like COVID-19 or in the future and solve things like uh, like cancer um, or at least parts of cancer and just revisiting everything we said. And plus, it's just really fascinating stuff to look through. It certainly is. Hey, Ari, thank you so much for joining this podcast. You've been a great guest um, and we look forward to talking to you again, potentially in the future. Thanks, Molly. I really appreciate the invite. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com.